cuando se despertó no le quedaba nada la pasión se le Welcome back to the third and final episode in our podcast series on Latinx hermeneutics. As we've discussed previously, hermeneutics is about the diverse ways we read and the power dynamics involved in reading, especially in reading the Bible. We discussed Latinx hermeneutics in particular because of our experiences and histories as Latinas. And these experiences and histories have shaped how we read, just as everyone's experiences and histories shape how they read. In this podcast, we're going to talk about gender and Latinx hermeneutics, especially as we see it in debates around a pop song. I am Jacqueline Hidalgo. I'm Associate Professor of Latina and Latino Studies and Religion at Williams College. And I'm Kay Higuera-Smith, Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Azusa Pacific University. So... As we think of our experiences as Latinas and the way that that can manifest itself in so many different ways, um, let's talk a little bit about gender and about our experiences as women specifically. We've talked before about how meaning is constructed, whether it's in books or texts or plays. Can you think of any any other a good example? outside of the Bible where the construction of meaning really has a lot to do with gender issues? Well, one I've been thinking about recently, and that's because of the time of year that we're recording this, though I think this will probably continue to be a perennial problem every Christmas season, is the debate around the song Baby It's Cold Outside. Ah, yes. (laughs) So I first encountered this song as a college student. Um, To date myself, I think it was in 1999, I went to a lecture on campus by Wendy Shallot, who was a conservative Jewish author. She'd written this book, A Return to Modesty. One of the things she claimed in that lecture was that we could see in the song, Baby It's Cold Outside, the importance of the trappings of modesty and modest culture. Before you go too far, let's play a little clip of that song. I really can't stay. Baby, it's cold outside. I've got to go away. Baby, it's cold outside. This evening has been Hoping that you drop so nice. hold your hands that just like the will start to work. And my father will be pacing the just listen to So Wendy Shallot was arguing that what you see in this song is this woman who really doesn't want to have sex with this man and she's being able to use the excuses of the concerns of the modest culture around her to get out of the situation. And I'd never heard the song really or I'd never paid attention to it. So her interpretation of it made me hate the song. I I didn't I didn't return to it again for a long time because I was like, "Oh god, that's awful." I, you know, as as a woman, I, I just think that that's a horrible thing. 
And not only that, yeah. she she wrote that in, what, 1999? But I know yeah. this year, there yeah. was a lot of talk on social media about that song, so pointing that out. One of the things that I found interesting is that in this, in in the Christmas season of 2018, it was again a controversial song. It was being pulled from radio. This is especially, in some ways, one might see it especially as a stronger reaction to the song that f- comes after hashtag Me Too gains a lot of traction. But it's it's interesting because it's also uh, this this Christmas season of 2018 was when I'd read an an article about the work of John C. Calvert showing how Said Qutb, the Egyptian Muslim and influential mid-20th century leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, found the song abhorrent for a completely different reason than I found it abhorrent. He identified it as being an erotic song that was about sex and about the ways that men and women could be together. And it it was very interesting to me to read that piece and then to see that there is this wide-ranging controversy over the song that uh, when when I looked it up in an article, it seems to go back to 2004, that there's been a lot of controversy over this song as being especially rapey. And if we think about... Wait, you said rapey? Rapey, right. And if we think about the context of figures like Bill Cosby, figures who have drugged women's drinks and then in their drug state sexually assaulted them, there's this song lyric. And, in, and yeah. also R. Kelly, right? Hashtag yeah. R. Kelly ha- that's is going, going right all now. over the yeah. place hashtag. because of this documentary. Yeah, hashtag surviving R. Kelly right now is also a factor in this. Um, but, you know, I'd say that it's probably been a discussion for some time, not just about those men, but I remember being told always to beware of Rupinol, always to guard your drink. And there's this song lyric that's specifically, hey, what's in that drink? And it makes the song seem in one reading like the man is really trying to coerce this woman into sex and that he's possibly drugged her. And it's it's interesting because that in, in light of the moment we're in, that is horrible. That is a horrible song. So then what was interesting to me is I, I read the Rolling Stone article by Amelia McDonald Perry uh, about the history of the interpretation of the song. I also read J.C. Fortin's New York Times article about the history of the song. And it was interesting the way that Fortin tries to play to what I would call the historical critical method of biblical interpretation in reading the song. Historical context. Yes. And appeals to authorial intent, right? As ah. appealing to not only the historical content context in which the song was produced, and that was that it was written by Frank Lesser in 1944 as something that he would perform with his wife, Lynn Lesser. And then in 1948, it was recorded for a musical, Neptune's Daughter. And in that musical, it starts with the way that we traditionally think of it, of the woman singing one part, especially the part about what's in this drink. And then it turns to the man. 
but that the second time the song is played in the musical, the gender roles are reversed. And Whoa. yeah, that changes the whole meaning. <laughs> well, and so Fortin uses that in a way to to talk about exactly that, that in that context, the song was calling out and playing with the gender norms of its time around sex and sexuality. And a 2016 Tumblr post had observed, I think it was 2016 on Tumblr, hey, what's in that drink? was a line in that era that was a pretty common joke. The assumption was there was nothing in that drink, that it was just a way that women would try to play on the norms of the patriarchy that was around them, that this was a way a woman could exercise agency and say, I know I'm going to violate the rules of sexuality and modesty, and I know that that goes against the norms for how I'm supposed to be as a woman, but I'm going to do it. And this is how I'm signaling my my willingness to violate them. So at the end of the song, the, the Fortune piece points out, you'll notice that the singers are singing together because they're on the same page. That's the sort of historical con, you know, contextual argument that appeals to authorial intent. And the in the New York Times, again, the Fortin piece, they quote Susan Lesser, who says, I am a supporter of hashtag me too, but they have very much missed the boat because they have missed the historical context of this song. Now, what's interesting to me as a biblical scholar is I think it it's a great song with which to think about how we have different hermeneutical approaches to many things in life. It's not just the Bible that we're talking about. I think it's an interesting way to observe the different hermeneutics uh, and to ask, how are we supposed to respond to it? Now, well, how do we? Because I, yeah. I got to tell you, I got to tell you, I'm older than you. I'm an older, a full generation older than you. So, as this discussion has been coming out, I wasn't aware of the 1999 article, but I know this year, after because of Me Too, there's been a lot of talk on uh, social media about it. And my reaction has been interesting to me myself because I consider myself a feminist. And, and I consider, uh, you know, the rape culture that we have incredibly damaging and... Um, and yet I found myself, when I'm listening to these, feeling really sad because, you know, Rod Stewart's version of that song, I just love it. You know, he's got that gravelly, sexy voice. And, of course, Rod Stewart himself, you know, there has that persona. And um, I'm finding myself really feeling kind of torn, like, no, not that song, because I'm really nostalgic and I love to listen to Christmas music at Christmas time. And that was always one of my favorite songs. Although, to, to be honest, I don't know if I just, it just went over my head or if I consciously suppressed it, but I don't even remember the line about what's in that drink. So that surprised me when you said that. So uh, here I am thinking, I want to like that song, but I shouldn't like that song. And I'm going through this crisis in my own head. Yeah, I think that that really speaks to exactly the problem that a lot of people had. And it is worth noting that since this the controversy really hit around the song in the last couple of years. It's actually become more popular than ever. Oh. Yeah, I mean, uh, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I know. Thing? I mean, so to me, I think it. I think it raises an interesting question. I think 
what do you do with something that people have a lot of love for? So one example is this artist, Lydia Liza. She wrote her own version of the song. And she wrote her own version of the song because she said that for her, authorial intent is not as important as valuing the epistemic privilege. That meaning that we sort of grant a priority to the knowledge that comes out of survivors of sexual assault, to those who've been most victimized by patriarchy. And if they say that this song is triggering for them, then we need to respect that. And so she wrote a different version of the song, same music, same theme in a certain way, but but giving a more egalitarian sense of agency. And that's certainly one response to biblical texts as well. Like we know that we've inherited these generations of patriarchy and interpreting them. So let's write our own version of them. I think that what... Lydia Liza has done is very interesting, but it it leaves me with several questions that I think are pertinent to biblical studies in in its own way, which is what how do we adjudicate the variety of interpretations yes. of a text that we encounter when we can see that even this text written recently, comparatively short, has no fixed meaning, no stable meaning. How do we deal with claims about authorial intent? What power should or should those claims have or not have? How does our claims about authorial intent also rely on the history we're constructing? What is the work we're doing in imagining the historical context of 1944? And how do we think about that? Um, And even if we read it historically, Does not this song still demonstrate the ways patriarchy has infected our most intimate spaces? And is there a way that whatever engagement we have with the song still requires that we navigate those dynamics of power and we think about what is going on with the power dynamics in that space? And I also think that it raises one final question for me, not surprisingly, Um, is that I don't have a definitive answer to any of these questions. Instead, these questions make me wonder about the the power of of music and of text and of what Vincent Wimbush calls scripturalization, the sort of media of knowing and the ways of knowing and the ways of adjudicating who has the power to determine proper ways of knowing and whose ways of knowing are being marginalized and being pushed to the side. And I think those are all questions we can ask about this debate as we can ask about the Bible and people's relationships to the Bible. So I think that uh, that you kind of are giving a way forward, and that is that hermeneutics, uh, when it is part of the art of reading the Bible, the act of reading the Bible and interpreting the Bible, is very much a an act of doing ethics, of of making ethical choices. And uh, too often, because we're told by some authority figure that this is what the text means, we don't even give ourselves the permission to say, all right, but what work is it doing for this authority figure? And what ethical claims are being made that are silencing certain voices? What ethical claims are made that are resulting in violence against certain groups of people? And I want to claim that we get to do that, that that is 
not only a legitimate but necessary part of Latinx hermeneutics because although our experience is mixed, we're both colonizer and colonized. Uh, geographically, we're spread all over the world. Uh, racially, there are Afro-Latinx, there are white Latinx, there are indigenous Latinx. Asian Latinx. El yeah. Asian European. <laughs> so we have to... Uh, we have to recognize that there's no one fixed meaning, but I think one thing that we can all engage in is asking what are the urgent questions that shape who I am as a Latina person and what are the ways that certain interpretations are being performed, are being, uh, what are being put to work to make p particular power claims. And in that sense, the work of Latinx biblical hermeneutics is really an urgent and important task. Thank you so much, Kay. It's always a pleasure to get to listen to you talk and think about these issues. Thank you, Jackie. It's been great.